Let's pray. Almighty and gracious God, O Lord, we ask that you speak to us through your word. Uh, Lord, that as our hearts are, are driven to ask so many questions and wonder of so many things in this world and, and why things happen and what happens, Lord, that we'd be driven more to trust you. That we turn our hearts over to you in faith, Lord, you redeem us with your faithfulness. Strengthen us and strengthen our trust in you now and every day. Amen. So uh, going back a few months now, on a Wednesday night during youth group, I asked the kids, uh, I told them we were going to start uh, an act with an activity, and it was going to be called Trust Falls. Uh, now, some of you may know what a trust fall is, maybe you've done them before, but in case you don't, I'll, I'll explain it to you here really quickly. And so, essentially, a trust fall is, uh, it takes two people, and the first person stands with their arms out, uh, and they are considered the faller. So all they have to do is stand with their arms out, and then fall backwards. The second person then is behind them and they're kind of bracing themselves with their arms out ready to catch that person when they fall. And so essentially it's a pretty kind of straightforward process. And I told the kids, here's that, you know, this is what we're going to do. Who wants to go first? And they all kind of looked at each other and no one put their hand up and no one said anything. And I was a little surprised by this because I asked them before, you know, how many of you have done this before? And a couple raised their hands. And I remembered when I was in high school, I went on different retreats and uh, I had done trust falls before. So, uh, of course, with no one stepping up to volunteer, I said, how about this? The adults will go first and then you guys will go after us. And they're like, oh yeah, okay, okay. So, uh, I, my wife, uh, Lauren, who's one of our adult leaders, I obviously called her up. I said, all right, hey, let's do a trust fall. She said, okay. And so uh, she fell first, you know, puts her arms out. I'm ready to behind her. And once I was ready, she fell. I caught her, lifted her back up. It was great. And so uh, then I said to the kids, well, do you think, you know, it'd be cool if Miss Lauren and I switch places if I fall into her? And all of them are like, ooh, yeah, Pastor, we really want to see that. Uh, and so uh, one of the unique things about trust falls is that, uh, generally speaking, uh, the way that the science works is that the two people do not have to be of the same size and stature. Uh, as long as you're placing yourselves in the right place and the person falls the right way, you can catch that person and, and lift them back up regardless of their size. And of course this is important because uh, my wife falling into me isn't really a surprising thing that I lifted her back up. But, you know, I'm a little bigger guy and so on and so forth. And so me falling into her is going to be an interesting time. Nonetheless, uh, she, you know, we, we switch places, and so I stand there, and I make sure that she's ready, and she says, I'm ready, and so, you know, three, two, one. Except I put my foot back. And so instead of falling into her arms, I caught myself. And all the kids started laughing immediately, and Lauren looked at me and said, oh, so you don't trust me, huh? And I was like, well, no, 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 I do trust you. I, I was just nervous. I was scared, and, and I didn't know what to do. And, Needless to say, we tried again a second time, and this time she caught me just as she expected to, first time. And uh, I share all of that with you because uh, lately I've been thinking a lot about trust and the, re the relationship between uh, trust in our lives and faith, and how those two things go together, how trust and faith go together, that, that the relationship between trust and faith is one of the most intimate relationships we have in our lives, and it's directly connected to our relationship with God. And so uh, over the next two weeks, we're going to be kind of in a short sermon series that's exploring this relationship. And the reality of uh, our trusting in God is directly connected to our faith in God. And so today, we're going to explore why we trust in God and how trusting in God is actually an act of faith. And then next week, we're going to explore the faithfulness of God and see how uh, God's faithfulness changes our lives. 
And as we do this, uh, we're going to be talking about uh, a lot of different things, but there's one biblical truth uh, that I want you to hang on to. One thing that I want you to remember over these next two weeks and well beyond that. We trust in God because He is faithful. We trust in God because He is faithful. Now, there are a lot of different places and passages in Scripture that you will find this biblical truth come to light. Uh, But for the next two weeks, we're going to dive into the story of one family in the Bible, and in particular, uh, focus on the story of one man in that family. Now, this man is someone you may have heard about, uh, especially if you grew up going to Sunday school as a kid. uh, You knew this story, and you knew one very special thing about this man. He had a really fancy coat, or a a colorful coat, uh, as the story goes. And as we go through this story uh, today and next week, we're going to be looking at the more adult version of this story. Uh, It's all over children's Bibles, but they usually kind of shrink it down and only tell you the good parts. But as we walk through this story in Genesis, the story of Joseph, we're going to cover a lot of what happens here. And so uh, Joseph was the youngest son of his father, Jacob. And for the sake of clarification, uh, that's at this point in the story. Eventually, Jacob has another son named Benjamin. And so eventually Joseph isn't the youngest, but right now he's the youngest son. And so he's got uh, uh, 10 brothers and one sister, and he is the youngest of them all. And he happens to be the firstborn of his father's favorite wife, Rachel. Yes, you heard that correctly. The firstborn, the youngest, of his father's favorite wife, Rachel. Now, uh, if we were going to explore the the story and the reality of of Jacob and Jacob's wives, we'd be here for a long time. So we're not going to get into any of that this morning. But as you can imagine, there's a lot of uh, interesting family dynamics that are going on in the midst of all of these siblings. So Joseph is the youngest of his family, the firstborn of Rachel, and he is his father's favorite son. And I know there are some of you out there saying, Pastor, come on, no parent has a favorite child. But let's be honest. If you think that uh, your parents do not have a favorite child, then there is a good chance that you are not the favorite child. But uh, nonetheless, Joseph is the favorite, and he's received this coat of many colors and uh, received all this love from his father over the years, and so his brothers are obviously a little jealous, and they begin to form uh, some hatred for him. And Joseph doesn't really help himself at all. See, uh, of course, as the younger brother, Joseph has responsibilities to to kind of deal with, and he acts just like a younger sibling would. And you heard this in verse 2 of the story, that Joseph is 17, and his father sends him out to the fields uh, to find his brothers. And it says he's a helper of the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. So basically, Joseph's out in the fields with his brothers. He sees that they're all goofing off, and he runs back to dad and tells them what they're doing. As a little brother, I can attest that's not what you want to do to your older siblings. And, uh, of course, that is not growing this relationship between his brothers. If anything, it's causing more distance. And along with that, then, Joseph has two really uh, interesting dreams. Now, uh, one thing to note about these dreams that Joseph has is that, uh, especially in the book of Genesis and in in different places in Scripture, uh, when we talk about dreams, we're actually kind of referring to a revelation from God. Uh, that, that dreams were the way or one of the ways in which God spoke to his people. Nowadays, we talk about dreams in almost a completely different way, and rarely do we see them this way. And we know that the way God reveals things to us is through his word. So uh, dreams in this context are Joseph's uh, receiving a message from God, basically. 
And here's what happened in the two dreams. In the first dream Joseph has, uh, he's out in the field working with all of his brothers. And they're binding up their crops. And eventually Joseph says that he sees his crop rise above the rest. And all the other crops of his brothers bow down before him. And then in the second dream Joseph has, uh, not only are the crops and everything bowing down before him, but he has risen up so that the sun, the moon, and the stars all bow down before him. Now, uh, well, Joseph could have kept this dream to himself. However, he decides to do the crazy thing. Instead, he goes and tells his family. He tells his brothers that he saw this, that one day uh, they are going to bow down to him. And then, of course, he tells his father about the second dream. So essentially what Joseph has done here is told his entire family that one day they're all going to bow down to him. And as you can imagine, if he's already being hated as the favorite son, this is really not doing him any favors in his family. And not only that, uh, in ancient Israelite culture, being the youngest would have meant you were the lowest. And so for the youngest son of this huge family to come to them and say, one day I will be over all of you and you will all bow down to me. Even the parents are going to bow down to me. Needless to say, there was a lot of tension in the family. And in fact, at this point, the brothers couldn't take it anymore. And so the story continues now. And Joseph's father sends him back out to his brothers uh, who are shepherding in the field. And here's what happens. They see him, and it says, before he came near to them, they conspired to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. And then we shall say that a wild animal has devoured him. And we shall see what becomes of his dreams. Their hatred for Joseph had grown so much that they were ready to kill their brother. Now, uh, interestingly and thankfully, that doesn't happen. In fact, the oldest brother, Reuben, steps in and he says, Whoa, let's not kill him. I don't like him either, but let's not kill him. Let's throw him into the pit. And just leave him here. No food in the wilderness. No one will ever find him and it'll be fine. We won't have to worry about him. And uh, there's a a unique little note in scripture there that Reuben says all of this because he's planning to come get Joseph later. Reuben knows that Joseph's father loves him. So Reuben says, I'm going to come get you later. I'll save you. Don't worry about it. So they throw him in the pit. They take his coat off. They leave him there with nothing. And then they have lunch and another brother sees some foreigners, travelers walking by. And he says, well... If our brother's life isn't worth it that we're going to kill him, why not at least make a quick buck for his life? And so they decide to take their brother from back out of the pit and they sell him off to strangers for 20 pieces of silver. They sold their own brother. And that's where our story in scripture this morning ends. Now, I don't know about you, but uh, with all of these details and with all this stuff going on, as I read this story over and over, I find myself thinking, this kind of sounds like an episode of The Sopranos. Uh, You know, uh, I mean, you've got all these wild family dynamics. You've got this clear sign of, of hatred amongst brothers, one who thinks he's better than the rest for all different kinds of reasons. You've got this brokenness that is found in the midst of this family. And uh, if there's one thing that happens, it's that the brothers hate their brothers so much that they want to kill him. But then they decide at least his life must mirth be something, so instead we're going to sell him off and we'll never have to see him again. And I point out all these details because I think as we read these stories and we hear all of this, it reminds us that the Bible is full of real-life stories. 
The Bible is, is full of real people. This is a, a true story, just like the stories that you and I share, just like the stories we see in the world around us, we hear that other people have. Stories of, of real brokenness. And it's important for us to remember this speaks to reality that the same way God was working back then, God is still working here and now. And in stories like this one, especially where our story ends today, at the end of verse 28, it's really hard for us to see where God is and what he's doing, if he's doing anything at all. Because just put yourself in Joseph's shoes for a moment. Imagine your father loves you so much and your brothers hate you so much that they want to kill you. They're willing to kill you. And instead, they just decide your life isn't worth killing, but you're at least worth some money. And so they sell you off, and you have no control over the situation. You trusted them when you were going to see them, and now you've got nothing left to show for it. You've got no control. You're going off with these strangers, these foreigners, and there's nothing you can do about it. As I, I put myself in Joseph's shoes, I find myself wondering what that must have been like. And, and there was a question that came to mind that I imagine Joseph may have asked himself. Why is God doing this to me? Have you ever asked yourself that question before? Why is God doing this to me? What did, what did I do to deserve this? What did I do wrong? It must have been something that, that I did. Uh, maybe it was uh, when you were uh, working and you know, uh, you'd been at a job for 10 years. And over the last six months, they promoted you. They told you you were doing such a great job. They, they loved you for all the work that you'd done. And then one day, you're going in, and your boss comes in, and he tells you that you're fired. That you need to leave immediately. Now you, you've got no answers. Uh, you, you just bought a new house, and now you're wondering how you're going to pay for it. You're wondering how you're going to provide for your family. Or maybe, uh, maybe you were going to a doctor's appointment, and you've been taking care of yourself recently. You know, you'd been eating healthy, you'd been doing right by your body, and all those things, exercising, everything comes together, and you're feeling good when you go into that appointment. And you tell the doctor that, and the doctor's like, oh yeah, you know, you look a little bit healthier too. And I said, you know, we've got to do the normal tests, and if we see anything, we'll call you back. And a week later, that phone call comes. And the doctor says, you know, I, I saw something, I want to send you in for some extra tests. And then you go in for those tests, and they say, we'll call you if we see anything. And a week another week goes by, and the phone rings again. And this time, the doctor tells you that what he's seen is cancer. And you're just left there wondering what comes next. Maybe uh, you find yourself feeling confused. Maybe you're feeling angry. Maybe you're filled with grief or with pain. Or maybe you just feel numb to what's happened, wondering how could this have happened? Is this real? And perhaps you find yourself feeling like Joseph did. Why is God doing this to me? And the truth is, I don't have an answer to that question. In fact, uh, the Bible doesn't really give us an answer to that question. And part of the reason is because when bad things happen to us or in the world around us, it's not the work of God. See, as followers of Jesus, one of the things that we confess in our belief is that God is good. And everything that God does is good. But when, when bad things happen, when evil strikes in our world or in our lives, that is not the work of God. The one thing we do know is 
just that God allows it to happen. And in that moment, we find ourselves again asking, why? And interestingly enough, uh, Scripture doesn't want us to, to think about things that way. We simply don't get that answer. We don't know why. But the truth is, we don't need to. See, in Proverbs chapter 3, it says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not rely on your own insight. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Scripture invites us instead to put our trust in the Lord, not in our own ways, not in our own thoughts, or even our own questions, but rather put our trust in the Lord with all our heart. Not to lean on our own understanding, but rather to lean on his. And so uh, rather than ask the question why, the Bible invites us to ask a different question of God. That uh, when we think about these situations, when we think about bad things happening in our lives and, and inexplainable evil, rather than asking why, we can ask what. Scripture invites us to ask the question, what is God doing? And the Bible answers this question in so many ways. Uh, so many ways, in fact, that if I tried to name all of them, I would forget so many and we would be here all night with so many missing. But the one thing I do know, the one answer that I think I can provide for us this morning is rather basic and it may seem really simple, and yet it is also a truth for us to hang on to. What is God doing? God is doing something. God is doing something. See, uh, this word is a promise that God makes to us. The promise that God is doing something is powerful beyond measure. Because it's a promise that reminds us that there is no place, no point, no time in our lives where the God of the universe is not at work. And even in the midst of evil things that he's allowing to happen, he is not doing those things. Instead, he is doing something else. He is doing something for our good. There is no place in your life that God is not at work. That despite the situations we, we find ourselves in, and, and despite the, the times when people have put us in the midst of broken situations, God is in control. God is actively working out his plan for your life and for his glory. And this is most clearly seen in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Because there are so many times in the Bible when we hear Jesus speak, uh, especially in the different Gospels in the New Testament, where, where Jesus says, I have come to do the will of my Father. I have come to complete my Father's work. I have been sent by my Father to do his will and to bring glory to his name. And in Jesus, God fulfills all the promises that he makes to me and you. In Jesus, God fulfills the promise that he has always been in control. In Jesus, God fulfills the promise that there is no part of your life that God cannot and will not redeem. In Jesus, God fulfills the promise that he does everything in our lives for our good. In Jesus, God fulfills the promise that he has defeated sin, death, and the devil for all of eternity. In Jesus, uh, God fulfills the promise that he is, he has been, and he always will be doing something through his faithfulness and his love for us. 
In Jesus, God fulfills the promise that everything he does is for our good. And that promise, along with all the other promises that we have in Scripture, are a constant reminder that even though we don't know why things happen or why God does what he does, we trust in what he is doing. Because God is doing something. And in the context of our story this morning, that's where we find ourselves. That as this passage came to a close, Joseph has been sold into slavery, and we're not really sure what comes next. Next week, we'll find out. Next week, we'll, we'll dive into the second half of this story, and we'll see what Joseph went through and what God was doing. A spoiler alert for you. God will still be faithful. But until we get there, I invite you to sit with that truth that I shared as I began this morning. That we trust in God because He is faithful. And my hope and prayer is that our trust in God continues to grow so that our lives are transformed by that incredible promise that each and every day of our lives, God is doing something. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.